you win some of the, the issues, you lose on some of the issues, and you try and find a, a good working balance. For about half a minute, we're saying, well, what if we put the tank on the roof? <laughs> we were just trying to find where was it going to fit and how was it going to work. The reason I work on these kinds of projects is that I have a real appetite and interest in all of this leading edge, bleeding edge technology. That's always been my interest. Welcome to the Theater Art Live podcast, and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna. On this episode, we'll be talking to Dawn Chang about the intersection of lighting design and theater consulting. Dawn has designed the lighting for shows in Broadway, Off-Broadway, and many regional theaters across the United States. She was also a resident lighting designer for the New York City Opera. Dunn is also a senior consultant for the theater projects and a mentor for the Wendy Wasserstein project that introduces New York City High School students to theater productions on Broadway. Hello, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. And she's also a contributor for Theatre Art Life. Yes. And so welcome, Dawn. Uh, we want to start with you just giving our audience a little bit of a brief about you and where you are and what you do. Okay, so I'm based in Connecticut in the United States, and my background, I, I started as a line designer and then eventually got into theater consulting, and my background actually is 16 years of music, uh, piano study, including four years at Oberlin Conservatory, and eight years of ballet study up through high school, and I didn't want to be a performer, but I loved music and I love dance. And in college, I discovered backstage theater and design and it was love at first sight. I kind of walked in uh, off the loading dock spring of my sophomore year and never left and added the second major. I was a psychology major already and I added the second major in theater. And by the time I graduated from college, I knew that this is what I wanted to do and continue to pursue it and flash forward to now. That's, that's how I got here. One of the few peoples that got to say, I knew it and I pursued it and I stayed in it and I still do it. Yeah, completely, completely. So who is a lighting designer? Or what, what does a light, lighting designer do? So on a production, I'm responsible for everything having to do with the lights from the moment you walk into the auditorium and have a seat and then the house lights go out and the lights come back up on the stage and the show begins. Uh, I'm in charge of all of that. And so I have to create a whole light plot that goes with the story that we're trying to tell and work with the director and the other designers and the performers and and craft the scenes and the moments on a moment to moment basis and we break those down into individual light cues and there can be up to 100 200 600 light cues in a show depending on how elaborate it is and that's my job to help transport us to whatever magical place or moment or feeling that we have 
with each particular moment in the show. So that's basically what I do. And with the with with the lighting design in terms of your process, how early is a lighting designer involved in the process, and how do you, do you how much collaboration with the director do you work, use as you work through those scenes creatively? Well, uh, on the shows, the the whole creative team comes together right at the beginning. So set, lighting, costumes, sound, projection, composer, if there is, is one on the show. And so that can start on a regional theater that might be six months in advance on big Broadway shows. We're often in design meetings a year in advance of a, of a big Broadway show, starting to have those conversations and and distill the whole, you know, what is our idea behind this particular production? What is our approach to it? And, and then taking it through all the steps and iterations that we need to do as a, as a collective team. We're collaborating constantly, which is part of what I love about working in performing arts, live entertainment, all of the collaboration, because it really is a, a gathering of minds together. So from a few months to a year or more. And the amount of lighting cues that you have in the show is because of the director or you're the person that likes to put a lot of cues in a show? <laughs> <laughs> it can be some of both. I'm, I'm usually the arbiter of, of what happens in the end. I mean, I, I can certainly have a lot of input from a director, but it's also I have to interpret that into what happens. Lighting and sound are in sort of an interesting category because our tools are a little bit intangible. Uh, when you hear a director talking to a line designer or sound designer, you'll start hearing all these sort of fuzzy adjectives. They don't quite know how to describe what it is they're getting at. And you have to kind of develop a language between you uh, to make that happen or sort of intuit out of the broader context of what's going on. Sometimes notes that the director's giving to the, the performers can help give me a, a better understanding of what we're trying to go for in this particular moment. Another director I work with is incredibly visual and he will often pull up examples from movies and Broadway musicals. He has this encyclopedic knowledge of movies and musicals. And the scary part is I understand at least, usually at least 90% of, of his references and go, oh, you want to do that? Okay, I, I can even raise that game even further and do this. Let's take a look at that. Because basically, a line designer gets hired on trust. You, don't, you can't look at a costume sketch. You can't look at a, uh, a model, a set model for what we do. We Sometimes lighting designers do renderings or sketches, but not always. And a lot of it is created out of what's being shaped on stage. Uh, we certainly have been planning for it, but responding in the moment, everybody's over down center or stage left and they're doing something and, and crafting that. I, I've had the impulse of what we're going to do for that moment, but I won't be able to completely nail it down until I see what's going on in real time on stage. And it's also hard to capture, right? Because, you know, you could take photos, but that's not your lighting design. And you could take a video and that's not your lighting design. So there's really no accurate record apart from people having seen the show itself, what that really looked like from your perspective. So 
yeah. Cameras are getting better. Cameras are getting better. And we also had, it's interesting you talked about the the interpretation and the uh, the working with the director because uh, Anna and I, know we had the, the sound people say exactly that we had the same discussion with the sound people we had on our podcast. We're saying, you're saying this about the audio or the sound, but what you actually mean is this, this and this. And I have to, I have to understand what you're, everybody hears sound differently, right? So I think it's the same with lighting. Everybody sees, and people have a different way of viewing, you know, even the way our eyes view colour and view light can be different from person to person. Exactly, exactly. So you're, you've done lighting design and then you've moved into some consulting. And, I, and, and for me, that sounds like a very um, natural progression because if you know how to build shows from a technical standpoint, then being able to consult on theatre projects or, or theatre spaces is a, and that can be a natural transition. How did that transition happen? And then what do you actually do when you are working as a consultant? So it happened for me out of uh, attending a confer- an opera conference in New York City years ago that Richard Pilbro was speaking at. Richard is a very famous lighting designer. He wrote a book all about lighting design and he's also the founder of Theater Projects, which is one of the major theater consulting firms that's been around for 60 years now and done projects all worldwide. And so we got to talking after his, his presentation and Lo and behold, his office called me about a week, a few weeks later. They had a, a little a specific project they wanted me to work on. So I came up. They were, they're based in Connecticut. I was based in New York City at the time. And came up and started doing some very targeted, specific project work for them on specific projects. <clears throat> and started getting into theater consulting that way. And Richard has always been a great believer in the consultants in his firm Everybody's in the firm is uh, a practitioner. They they were a designer, they were a production manager, they were a technical director, stage manager, company manager. So everybody comes from uh, a production and performing arts background, and that makes so much sense when you're trying to build these very unique types of buildings where you you need a deep and intimate knowledge of how those buildings operate and why they need to be put together the way that they do. So that's what brought me in. And I continued to do uh, specific little projects for them along the way and have, con- have always continued my design career in parallel with that. That was very much encouraged and, and supported. So that's what I've been doing to this day. And how does your work as a light designer will um, affect or have an effect on what you do as a theater consultant? What, where does those two worlds merge for you? It's an understanding of the whole production process and, and an aptitude and an attitude for all things technical as well. So we all know that there's certain things like adjacencies in a in a performance venue that are very important in terms of the stage and its relationship to the loading dock, the stage and its relationship to dressing rooms, the sight lines of the auditorium where how, how well can people see the stage and also how intimate does that grouping feel? There are some theaters that have gotten kind of spacious and you start feeling further and further apart and that 
kind of starts to dilute the kind of energy that kind of circulates around the room when you when you get a performance going. So there are all these different kinds of things to balance into that. And then I'm I'm a bit of a tech geek. So I I'm able to bring all of that to the technical and the production aspects that we need to weave into the design and specifications of of a of a performance venue. And obviously is there been times, I guess, if you're looking at a, maybe a renovation or a space or a new venue or a purpose-built venue, is there times that you've sort of been brought in the process where you're like, oh, I'm, I'm here a bit late and there's certain things that you can't change or there's certain things that you cannot be controlled? I think of it as a minefield, really, knowing some of the projects that you've worked on here in Asia, just to manage and control that amount of information with that many people, especially even through the construction processes is huge. So how do you, how do you approach that behemoth of, of work, especially when you, there's so many challenges to maintain a great space? Yeah. The, and every project is different because the chemistry between the owner, the, the user, the owner and the user may be two different entities right there. There's some venues that get built that have an owner, but no user. And that's probably the most, one of the challenging ones to try and create something it's like trying to design a home for somebody you don't actually have anybody who's going to be living there you don't know if you're trying to design it for a family of four or you're trying to design it for you know a couple with no kids you need some context in which to try and craft a space that's going to work for them Mm. so there's that part from the very beginning and then there's also just everything having to do with all the different players that are involved, as you, you're mentioning, that go into building a theater. There are star architects who want to do it their way, and the needs of a op- operational functioning theater, sometimes they, they perceive it as it gets in their way of their artistic vision of what a theater and an auditorium and a lobby and all of that should look like. And you're going, no, the loading dock does need to be adjacent to the stage. (laughs) You go, what do you mean? That's getting in my way. (laughs) It doesn't look pretty, but. It doesn't look pretty or, or the stage is is up one level. So we're going to need a freight elevator. What do you mean? You're taking up all the space and, 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 you know, on and on. So there are all these things that you have to manage and manage expectations and all that. You win some of the, the issues, you lose on some of the issues, and you try and find a, a good working balance. So the early part is who are all the players and constituents who, are, who have a stake in, in this building? Then there's the middle part of actually figuring out how this building is going to be designed and specified. And then the next phase is actually building the venue. And that's also what you're starting to allude to. Something like um, House of Dancing Water or Hansho uh, in mainland China. These are very, very complicated buildings. When, when House of Dancing Water was built, that was the first type of show, a swimming pool show of of that complexity that had been built outside of Las Vegas at that particular point in time. And Las Vegas had built six or seven venues like that over a span of years. 
And it took, if you actually look at Las Vegas, it took them several cycles for that construction trades that are very, very good to build up the body of knowledge and experience to, to, con- to build and engineer these increasingly more complex buildings that are unlike any other buildings in the world. Okay, so you have all of that and you have a handful of people who know how to do that. Flash forward to Macau, and we're gonna we're gonna start in. Not, we're not gonna start at step one. We're gonna start at level seven or eight in terms of a complex building. Take it to a whole nother country where no one's even seen the other shows, and we're gonna make this happen. And you're working with different cultures, different knowledge bases, and all that, and starting to make this whole big project happen. So that was that was a whole interesting cultural exchange, information exchange, and all of that, where on something like House of Dancing Water, I, I discovered the the construction companies. It was a joint venture between a, an Australian firm and um, a Chinese construction company. And so the managers were all from Australia. And we're talking about these crazy, crazy things like lifts, hydraulic lifts in a pool of water. And I'm trying to explain to them that each of the lifts themselves weigh roughly 10 tons a piece. And how are we physically, the conversation that day was, how are we going to get these lifts into the building? And the conversation was going around in circles. And then partway through the meeting, somebody drops off a stack of photographs that have been taken at uh, Handling Specialty where they were being constructed in, in Canada. And you see a picture of the center lift and you see six tiny, teeny, tiny little ants, which were human beings on the center of the center lift <laughs> in, in, in this enormous ocean of steel trussing that was the understructure of, of that w- single lift, which was one of many lifts that went into the pool. So somebody put those feathers on the table and, and, and everybody picked it up and that was the first sense of the scale of what I was trying to describe to them. And, and so there was this deer in the headlights look. And, and once I realized, once, once I got to the deer in the headlights look, then we could actually start having a conversation about how do we move this object into the building because it's so far afield from anything that they could possibly imagine, much less ever have done. I had to get to that point with each big topic that we had on the project to get that, oh my goodness, really? And then we could start having a conversation. Mm. That was kind of a fun experience. But that's when <laughs> I realized that that's what I had to do. Yeah. So you, you were the project manager for for those big projects, right? For both the House of Dance and Water and then the hand show. And um, can you tell us a little bit more on what exactly was, I mean, as much as not really getting into the deepest details, but what what was your role as project manager during this constructions? With uh, House of Dancing Water, I was the project manager for theater projects uh, through the early design of the building. So it's working with the user, Dragon, Franco Dragon's company, and the owner and the designers of the of the building to come up with the 
the space as as they conceived of it. And Michelle Cret was our set designer from Dragon, who was masterful at having an understanding of, of that space and how we envisioned it and how to have 2,000 people in an intimate setting and all that. So we worked to make that happen. And then at a certain point, theater projects work was done. And then I was asked to come over to Macau to be part of a team that was going to build, uh, actually supervise the construction. So that's what I did. I moved to Macau for a year to work out of a construction trailer. So it was working with, we had the construction company where all the managers were from Australia. The local architect was from Hong Kong. The local engineers handling all of the various systems, uh, MEP, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing, structural and all that were based in Hong Kong as well. So I was in a lot of meetings as we continued to thrash out the middle level and small level details that were, you know, bouncing back and forth between Cantonese and English and all of that. And I discovered that the best way to get things moving in these meetings, because everything would splinter into all these mini groups of people talking, all in Cantonese. I only speak enough Cantonese to get around in a taxi. Was that I realized that everybody on the construction site knew how to read blueprints. So I would just grab a stack of scrap paper and a fistful of pens, colored pens, and take what was going on the, you know, if it was going on in Cantonese, somebody would flip back into English and explain, catch me up on what was going on. And I would sketch out whatever the topic was of the day in one color and grab another pen and in a different color show what some of the different solutions people were coming up with. And then suddenly everybody was focusing on the same topic, same idea and grabbing different colored pens and, and thrashing out a solution. And we got a lot done that way. You know, we skipped the words and went straight to sketching. Not to mention your daily trips around the building, right? I always remember (laughs) every day that Chris Chris used to stand up. There was a moment where I'd be there and she'd be off and you're like, what are you doing? I'm doing the rounds. And it's just to make sure that everything was going in as it was supposed to because especially in this part of the world, if there was a shortcut or a another way to do it, they wouldn't necessarily, right? Am I right? They didn't necessarily follow the plan to see. And we had uh, motorbikes. I remember one particularly, yes. uh, there's the air conditioning ducts were very a big problem because we had oh, yes. motorbikes running around the back of the stage. So there's a certain clearance that was required. And I remember that being one of the, oh, don't be putting the air conditioning ducts here today. No, 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 no. That's not where they are in the That's plant. right. <laughs> That's right. We, we went through four iterations of all of the air conditioning ducts, all of the uh, electrical and the plumbing and everything at uh, at at pool level because of the clearance we needed for the motorbikes, and I kept making them, and then Chris did you know no 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 good you got to do it over you got to do it over, and refining what they were doing uh, to to get it right because they didn't understand why the tolerances were so specific. A lot of times in construction is like close, close enough is fine. And uh, possession is nine tenths of the law. So if you got there first and found a shorter, easier way to do it, that happens to be, you know, 
half a meter lower than everybody else. Hey, we got there. Nobody, nope, can't do it. And it just went, what do you mean I can't do this? And it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, especially a show that didn't actually know, there were certain elements that you knew were going to exist in the space, but not everything, right? So it's what a what a kind of mix of channeling that information of what we do, what you do know about the show, what is required, what's required for a theatre. And how did you find that process or maybe on the Han show or on other shows you've done, how do you find that channeling of what you know about stuff, the unknown, and especially with the creative process of something that is built to fit? Right. So on these two projects we're talking about, uh, House of Dancing Water and Han show, there was as you say, a fit-to-purpose production that was going to inhabit this building. It wasn't going to be a road tour. It it wasn't going to be a touring house. It wasn't going to be used for 18 different purposes. It was for a specific production. Uh, So our signposts to, to guide us along the way were Franco's concept sketches. He, he has artists who would, generate sketches based on his ideas and they're kind of open a little a little loose and all that but you can kind of surmise what's going on there are water fountains there there are people coming in from high elevations we don't know exactly what kind of high elevations people are flying around and all this so we we in the early stages as a team were working with dragon and figuring out what that meant so so that there is a level four that's at 17 meters above water level. There is a grid that's higher up, and, and we're going to put in 40 trolleys on 20 different tracks. That's going to become the backbone by which these ideas can be expressed, and so on and so forth. So And, and so uh, Dragon would be checking back and forth with Franco to a certain degree, and, and that's became the way that guided us through these two very, very specific buildings. It's, that's, that's a different process than building a drama theater for a university, which is a more generic shape and a generic purpose. This is, this is very specific. We know we had a whole bunch of hydraulic lifts in a very big swimming pool. So you have to uh, make plans to accommodate that. Uh, we also knew that we needed be, to be able to drain most of the pool to do maintenance on the main pool and be able to recirculate the water back up into the pool uh, afterwards, as opposed to dumping millions and millions of gallons of water each time you did that. When in, in Las Vegas, that's what they do. They dump the pools for O and Lareb. They just dump it into the Las Vegas sewer system and, and go from there. But it takes a long time to one, refill the pool, two, uh, re- and heat the water to temperature. So they wanted to have a quicker turnaround. So, I mean, there, there are all kinds of stories about where do we put the, the tank to dump the pool into. I mean, we, you know, we thought every single which way. We even, for about half a minute, we were saying, well, what if we put the tank on the roof? We were just trying to find where was it going to fit and how was it going to work? You know, like I said, it lasted for about a half a minute. But uh, uh, when you're working on a project as extraordinary as something as House of Dancing Water, which is a wonderful project to work on, you really need to use your imagination to, as as you know, Anna, to to come up with solutions. Mm. 
and approaches and, and the whole mindset, which I think is a, a great way to work. Do you find like working on the house project made working at uh, Wuhan at the hand show easier? Uh, it certainly gave us a strong foundation by which to understand the building type. The biggest part then became doing construction in, in China is very different than doing construction in Macau. If we thought coming from North America and doing construction in Macau was a shift in culture, it was even a bigger change going from Macau to mainland China. And so, again, it's a cultural thing. They, they just don't have the construction practices in place that we, that we use uh, in the West. A lot of the tools that they use are fashioned by the construction workers themselves. They'll, the, because they don't have a hammer, they'll bend a piece of rebar and put and weld um, a bolt onto the end of it to be a hammer. They, they don't have any safety gear, uh, which was absolutely mandatory on, on, on site in Macau. There, there's none of that. And just a whole different way and, and no middle management in terms of construction trays of, of somebody going around supervising within each trade, within the uh, welders or within the plumbing or uh, electricians. That's not the way it's done. So, so once again, we became even more of a managing and, and checking on things um, to make sure that things are getting done right, even more so, many times over anything that we had to do in Macau. And how do you approach when, you know, it seems a, a little bit of an intimidating project for me to lock yourself into a design of a theatre knowing that technologies change so quickly, you know, the sizes of projectors get smaller, the, the way, you know, the way thing, lights, you know, going to LED lights and the, I, I can imagine staying abreast of all of that technology development and including and allowing space for that to occur, knowing that in 10 years it's probably completely different technology how do you get over the fact that it's never going to be perfectly right because I feel like that's like as a perfectionist I feel like that would be like a nightmare <laughs> I'm just like I'm never gonna I'm never gonna design the perfect venue because I'm it's just constantly changing right 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 which is which is which is fine um the all the stuff that you're talking about are the the very last thing in in the chain of events so Projectors, absolutely. They've all changed in the 10 years since, since House of Dancing Water in terms of what the technology and everything that's out there. But you still need power and you still need data. So the infrastructure still is valid in terms of all that, which you plug into or uh, the thing that you put at the very end of that chain can change. And that's fine. And that's how it should be because there are all these incredible advancements that can keep coming along. Same thing with lighting. It's still power and data to an endpoint. There is conversation in the industry right now about uh, at what point is lighting everywhere going to go to 100% LED, which means we need a lot less dimmers or no dimmers in the most extreme cases and just the drivers for for the LEDs. Uh, we're in an in-between period and that's going to be for a number of years. So all we can do is bet on that. There's products that are out there that 
with a flip of a switch it can be just for LEDs or 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 a more traditional type of uh, dimmable light that costs a little bit more. But that's where we're going to be for a while. Eventually, we'll get to that. So the infrastructure, the pipeline that gets you there, is still the same. And bring it on. Let's keep changing the stuff at the at the end, as as it should. Because um, I'm I'm a big fan. I the reason I work on these kinds of projects is that I have a real appetite and interest in all of this leading edge, bleeding edge technology. That's always been my interest. I'm a daughter of an electrical engineer <laughs> and an inventor who worked in Silicon Valley and had my dad had several patents to his name. So I, I grew up with that mindset in that, you know, you're going to keep changing it and, and breaking new ground and all of that. So I'm, I'm cool with that. And you're just like getting information from whatever you can. I can imagine that you're just like, okay, so what's out there? Let me read, let me see, let me hear conversations. Let me go to a number of places and conventions. Yep. As a matter of fact, today I was just watching a webinar for a guy who works in Hollywood and he does all of the specialty and special effects lighting for all of the Marvel action movies. So he, he was talking about how he uses the particular um, CAD drafting program and really kind of pushes it to the limit to really get a lot of great work product out of it that he can use on a day-to-day -day basis and, and all these kind of mind-blowing things that he does to, to work on you know, any of those big high-tech action films which is really cool. So yeah, I mean, this is what I do for fun. So that's what I was doing before, before I sat down with you guys was watching two hours of that <laughs> alive in real time. Nerding out, <laughs> nerding out. on all the new Yeah, tech. that's what I do. <laughs> you know, you've heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, it, but you know, I think it's a great combination and also just that foundation fundamental functionality of the building going back to sort of the infrastructure and the design. It's, it's so important for the actual longevity of theatres as well to, you know, because some simple design uh, methods can lower crew numbers, can reduce labour, you know, and I, I always think back the, the first time I, w I, w I went, I did an event many years ago in a place called Hillsong Church in Australia and all prior to being a stage manager, I did a lot of rigging lights and I did a lot of tech work and, it always was very laborious and I, I turned up as a stage manager though but at a Hillsong church and I was amazed that there was this process of that a truck could back up to this loading dock or you could have a ramp and you would roll a lighting case out from the truck or up the ramp if you wanted to into an elevator up to the grid and across the grid, the grid arms um, were wide enough and carpeted enough that you could get a road case right to the place where you would hang a light, open the case up and put it over it on the bar. And in my mind, it was like, <sighs> because yeah. I've been in so many venues where you're like pulling lights up, or, you yes. know, and it's physical work. And I thought, man, for a load in or a load out or anything like this, this just, it's a game changer. So yeah. it's it's always I have a, a huge appreciation for a well designed theatre and I, I am in much admiration of people who do those kind of jobs because as a pr practitioner and I guess it comes back to your practitioner as a lighting designer and stuff what what that offers you on a day to day basis in reality in the long term of a functioning theatre can make or break it right yep 
Yep. And, and, and my perspective as, as a line designer and a backstage person is only one part of it. We try and get a stage manager. We walk them through the drawings to see, go, okay, Anna, what, what do you need? What am I missing? What are we missing that we need to get? I remember as you guys were going into tech, I got an email from a cast that said, Franco wants to get from backstage to the lobby without having to go through the auditorium. Is there a way to do it easily? And I said, not easily. There is no pass door. I can tell you how to get there, but know that because that whole pool and that theater, it's that circle, that's the auditorium and the pool goes right to the perimeter of the property line. So there's no usual access door outside of that circle. So no, there isn't an easy way, but I can tell you one way to get there. But those are the kinds of questions you need. And I remember you guys coming to me like, where where do you want the cue lights? I'm like, I have to decide now. Yes, you have to decide now. Oh, okay. (laughs) And the pressure, like, oh, God, I'm going to be into this. (laughs) It's only wiring the cable. We we can put more. We can change it now, but they they want to get started. (laughs) I know, but it was still like, I I still felt the pressure. This is pretty early in the process to tell you where I want the cue lights. But, no, I mean, being prepared for all of that, again, makes the later on you know and also not extra work for you guys if if half those cables are run and half those things have been planned right. for you know so fascinating process for me to be on the peripheral being involved in that so what would you say is the mo- the thing that you like best about your job is it lighting design is it consulting is it nerding out on new stuff that you know that you're learning about what's your favorite part of a process tell us about that oh god i mean they all feed each other um I, I always consider myself a, des- a designer first. There is just that creative gene. I, I have to be doing that. That's what keeps me going and, and keeps me curious and interested and activated. And then I bring that back into my work as a consultant. Uh, the nerding out is just because I like to nerd out. And that also feeds the consulting. And that all works. Sometimes I guest teach, and I found that teaching one semester a year is about the right balance for me because it's the same thing. It allows me to take everything that I do in design or consulting and bring that back into the classroom. And so that that, that sort of circle of every, one thing feeding the other, and I can bring it back into the classroom and the kinds of questions that students ask me gives me all kinds of really interesting revelations and stuff about my own work as a designer and it feeds back out. So I guess I can say I can't stay still. (laughs) I like the fact that I have kind of these three points of of being a designer, being a consultant, and my natural appetite for finding out all the geeky things, nerdy things that are going on. And it, and it, it all just keeps contributing round and round. And if you could change anything from either your specific disciplines and jobs or how the the way the industry works would you change any anything what would you change mm, I don't think I would change anything I I do the one one thing I do wish and I haven't quite mastered it yet is I I wish I was multilingual 
having worked in Hong Kong and Macau, which is Cantonese, and China, which is Mandarin, as the predominant dialect there, which is completely different than Cantonese. I was brought up around Cantonese and Mandarin, but was taught English first. So I only have a smattering of those two Chinese dialects. I would love to be fluent. And my high school French is actually better than my Cantonese. Uh, so I would love to be multilingual. I would love to be fluently multilingual just because of how facile that allows you to be in terms of communicating on a, on a more nuanced level. Do you have specific languages you'd like to learn? Uh, well, you know, Cantonese and, and Mandarin would be good. And to continue to hone my, my French, you know, I've, I've actually queued design shows in Paris and stuff like that. And the translators left me alone after day two and said, you're doing fine. You're on your own. I got to go take care of the others. So those, those would be fine. Just the small ones. Yeah. Mandarin and Cantonese. <laughs> yeah. Man- Mandarin and Cantonese. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just just continuing to to uh, deepen that because uh, and you know because like when I was in Hong Kong and Macau and China, I, I would hear people who knew German and Cantonese and English, uh, you know, um, an Asian tour guide, and I was following his tour around a, a, a monastery just because to hear a Chinese tour guide speak fluent German was fascinating to me. That's that's what I would like like to do. I think you can do it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Just continue to work on it. Yeah, we can speak in French whenever you want. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, make sure you guys check the notes so you can get the links, and also you'll get some uh, links to some of her articles on the Theater Art Life website. Dawn, thank you so much for spending some time with us uh, in your evening, my morning, and uh, we really welcome your insight on your job as a consultant and designer, lighting designer. <laughs> it's been my complete pleasure to do this with you guys. Thank you so much. Please write a review on our podcast whenever you listen to our podcast. Let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life by visiting our website at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on social media and leave your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, or YouTube. We really want to thank David Zaya for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Sharotta, who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world.